Welcome to the colloquium, the Thursday colloquium for Harris Media Studies Writing, which uh, is featuring uh, one of our own, Sushit Costanza Chak, Professor of Civic Media. Uh, he's a scholar, activist, media maker, who works on social movement media, collaborative design, media justice, and communication rights. He holds a doctorate from the Annenberg School of, uh, for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California, where he was a postdoctoral research associate. Sasha is co-principal investigator at the MIT Center for Civic Media, creator of MIT Co-Design Studio, and a faculty associate at the Berkman Center for International Society at Harvard. He's a board member of the Allied Media Projects Organization, and a co-founder of Research Action Design, R-A-D-C-A-T. While living in Los Angeles, he worked on a variety of civic media projects with community-based organizations, including the award-winning Bosmop Net Platform. Sasha's first book, which you can see here, is uh, titled Out of the Shadows into the Streets, Transmedia Organizing and the Immigrant Rights Movement. Um, just a lot of distress. It's a work that many of us have seen at various stages, and it's great to see it uh, out now. This is a remarkable book. Sasha traces out um, a broad contemporary social movement in the ecology that has evolved in our times and examines the intricate details of its workings. Through a richly detailed account of daily media practices and the immigrant rights movement, he argues that a new paradigm has emerged in social movement media making, which he calls transmedia organizing. In his foreword, Manuel Castells observes that Sancho's book, quote, represents a fundamental contribution to a rigorous characterization of the new avenues of social change in societies around the world. The internet and mobile platforms are used alongside of and in interaction with paper leaflets, interpersonal face-to-face -face communication, bulletins and newspapers, graffiti, pirate radio, street art, <coughs> public speeches and assemblies in the square, and what Sasha calls the media ecology of the movement. Sasha. Thanks, Jim. So good evening, everyone. Hello. Good evening, everyone. Hello. Hi. <laughs> OK. So uh, Jim already you know, gave me a nice intro, so I'm not going to talk that much about this. Of course, my Prezi is freezing already. That's great. Try this again. So this is me. I'm a faculty member at CMS, uh, faculty affiliate at the Berkman Center. And I'm recently co-founder of Research Action Design. And you can check that out at rad.cat, which is a worker-owned cooperative. And we do design projects with community-based organizations. What I'm going to do tonight is talk to you a little bit about my own background uh, as an engaged scholar and as a designer who works with movement organizations. I'm going to provide a little bit of an overview uh, context of the immigrant rights movement over the last uh, decade in the United States. And then I'm going to focus in particular on what's actually the last analytical chapter of my book, which is about professionalization and accountability in uh, transmedia organizing projects in the immigrant rights movement. So first, 
you know, to locate a little bit, you know, how I got into this work uh, and a little bit about my background. So in the late 90s, early 2000s, I spent a lot of time working with the Indie Media Network, the independent media centers. And this was a worldwide network of all volunteer uh, community journalists who worked primarily uh, documenting the global justice movement. And so I ended up working on a number of documentary films that talked about the global justice movement, like This Is What Democracy Looks Like and The Miami Model. And these are films that were produced by large numbers of activists who shot them with handheld cameras, and they were edited by collaborative teams of, of, uh, of, of people. I then moved to Los Angeles, where I was working on my, my doctoral work at USC, as Jim said. And while I was there, I ended up spending a lot of time working with immigrant rights organizations in LA. Um, one, of those, one of the projects that I uh, co-founded and worked a lot on is VASMAB, or Voces Mobiles. And this is a mobile blogging project that allows people to use cheap phones that aren't internet connected um, to post content to the web via voice calls and picture messaging and SMS. And this project went on to win um, awards from the United Nations World Summit um, and to, be, to inspire a number of, of similar projects. And actually, there's a whole community of people, these are some of them, who continue to uh, post stories to bossmob.net today. And there are now thousands of stories there that are posted from, from cheap phones, um, mostly by working class immigrant folks who live in and, and work in Los Angeles today. When I arrived at MIT, um, I worked with a really talented team of folks at the Center for Civic Media to take the software that we had developed in Los Angeles with the Bosma project and turn it into a hosted platform, which is called Vojo. And so Vojo basically takes the uh, functionality that we built using participatory design uh, with day laborers and household workers who form part of the base of an organization in LA called IDEPSCA, the Institute of Popular Education, and it makes that software available to other people to create their own similar uh, media projects. And since we've launched it, uh, there are now over 100, and 100 groups uh, using Vojo. These are just a few of them, and I don't really have time to talk about them tonight. But I do want to just mention, um, for example, Sandy's Storyline, which is a participatory documentary about surviving Hurricane Sandy uh, in New York, which actually won the Tribeca Interactive um, Award last year. And most recently, we've just launched a site called Contratados.org that on the back end uses uh, some of that same software that we originally developed with day laborers in LA. This is a site which is kind of like Yelp for migrant workers. So this lets people who are in Mexico uh, being recruited by recruiters and recruitment agencies to come work on H and J visas in the US, mostly in agricultural work, um, to kind of review their recruiters and their employers and the experience they have um, so that they can share information about who's ripping you off and who's, um, you know, and who's an honest broker. And this is actually a transmedia project. It includes graphic novels um, with know your rights information about you know, minimum wage and does, can the employer charge you for uh, a visa fee and what do they have to sort of provide for you. It also has audio PSAs that are airing on Radio Bilingue, which is a bilingual uh, radio network um, in, on both sides of the border in the US and Mexico. So I'm talking about all of that because it provides you some context for the way that I work, the way that I do research. So I engage uh, in sort of a broad methodological approach, which is often talked about in terms of participatory action research. So that means that I work directly with uh, community-based organizations and movement networks 
and come up with research questions together with them and then develop work uh, together. And sometimes that work looks like a media making project um, and sometimes it looks like uh, like looks more like uh, what we think of as research. And so the work that I'm presenting tonight and this book is based on over 10 years of my engagement with the immigrant rights movement as a participant in that movement as well as an engaged scholar and, and researcher. So the key concepts in the book, and I'm not going to have time to sort of elaborate all of them tonight, but I talk about the media ecology in which social movements operate, a complicated media ecology that involves not just the interesting new space of social media and the net, but involves everything from uh, broadcast English language media to the increasingly powerful role of Spanish language media in the case of the immigrant rights movement, and so on. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. I obviously talk about transmedia organizing, social movement media practices, the rise of critical digital media literacy, which uh, I was talking with Nick earlier today. I like to think of this in terms of the rise of read, write, execute digital media literacy. So as people become more familiar with the tools not only of receiving media, but also learning how to make it. And then the next step is, uh, in my framework anyway, thinking about how you use your media making skills to execute actions in the world, in your group, in your community, and so on. I talk a lot about pathways to participation in social movements. And one of the key arguments that I'm making is that media making itself is an important pathway into uh, becoming a participant in a social movement, into becoming an organizer. And so over and over again, people that I worked with and interviewed talked about how their first engagement with the immigrant rights movement was through making a particular piece of media. Talk about professionalization and accountability, and that's what I'm going to focus the last part of this talk on. But first, let's discuss a little bit the context of the immigrant rights movement in the US. So although immigrant rights advocates believed that the incoming Obama administration would be more friendly to immigrants and to the possibility of uh, policy reform, in fact, what's happened is we've seen increased raids, detentions, deportations, and the steady militarization of the border zone. So I don't know if you can see these in the back rows, but basically um, we're now the Obama administration is now deporting over 400,000 people uh, per year. This is the highest rate in history. And at some point last year, the number passed 2 million people uh, deported, which has earned Obama the nickname among immigrant rights advocates of deporter-in-chief. This is the budget of the US Border Patrol, which now hovers around $3.5 billion per year. Again, uh, drastically up. Uh, by about a billion from 2008. And we've seen the rollout of programs like ESCOM, or Secure Communities. So ESCOM is an information sharing uh, program between local law enforcement and the Department of Homeland Security. And the way it works is that anytime somebody is arrested for, uh, for anything, uh, biometric information is gathered, so a fingerprint scan is taken, and that fingerprint is then compared that's sent from local law enforcement to the FBI, uh, and then the FBI sends it on to check against a DHS, Department of Homeland Security database, around immigration status. 
And so what you have is people who are arrested but not charged or tried and not necessarily arrested for um, you know, any, any particular type of infraction. So it could be jaywalking or um, you know, public drunkenness or you know, whatever it is, um, potentially then end up funneled into the detention and deportation system. What's interesting about secure communities is that this program, uh, it was framed as if it would be an optional program when it was rolled out. And what ended up happening is that local law enforcement uh, ended up signing up for secure communities because they wouldn't receive federal dollars uh, to fund local law enforcement operations if they opted out. So it wasn't really uh, an opt-in system. And in fact, a lot of local law enforcement agencies don't like ESCOM because if you're a, if you're a law enforcement you know, uh, professional and you're trying to do police work in an immigrant community that might have a large number of undocumented people, this really decreases the trust that you get. And so it makes it more difficult uh, you know, for local law enforcement to, to do their job. We've also seen in the past decade the rise of bills like Arizona's SB 1070. This is the Driving While Brown bill. So this said anyone, you know, it gave law enforcement the, uh, the mandate to stop people who they suspected of being undocumented uh, and then run a check on them against these federal databases. And that portions of that bill were struck down by the US Supreme Court, but other portions still stand. And SB 1070 spawned copycat legislation across the country. Why is this happening? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons for the militarization of immigration or for the rise of uh, the immigration system. So one of them is capitalist profitability. So there are growth industries here involved, including private prisons and detention facilities, uh, the vendors of biometric systems, and the border militarization industries. So uh, drones, heat detection systems along the border, um, but I wanted to show this image, which is, uh, this is from Detention Watch Network. What this is, is nightly beds that are filled in the detention system. And this is an old uh, figure. This is, I believe, uh, 2009. I'm not sure if it's 2009 or 2008. Uh, 2009. Um, so basically, this is, this is a little bit higher number now. It's around, you know, 35 to 40,000 people per night are in detention facilities in the United States. And you can see that half of these are federally run facilities, right? But half of them are run by private for-profit firms. So Corrections Corporation of America, the GEO Group, those are the two biggest ones. These are companies that run private prisons, um, and so they're part of the ballooning mass incarceration system in the US. But uh, what's interesting is that they see detention facilities for immigration as a growth sector for them. So they've maxed out the beds that they've filled in the regular for-profit prisons uh, that they've gotten contracts to build. And so they see this as a growth area. And actually, this summer, there was a leaked memo from CCA, Corrections Corporation of America, that said, um, I, I don't know if, if people were paying attention, if you, if you saw the unaccompanied minors on the border crisis. So there was a very high number of children arriving from Central America on the US-Mexico border uh, this summer. And so there's a leaked memo from CCA that says, well, we've filled a lot of the, the regular uh, detainee beds, but we see real growth 
and the possibility of building more facilities for unaccompanied minors. Right? So this is really this is like Mr. Burns, you know, sitting there like, ah, we can make money by putting little kids in, in facilities. It's, it's pretty outrageous. And they uh, lobby actively to pass bills state by state, as well as at the federal level, uh, to fill these facilities. But of course, it's not just about capitalist profitability. It's also about the expansion of the security state. So these systems tend to have a logic that grows on its own, right? So systems, security systems, uh, surveillance systems that aren't necessarily functional or effective or even profitable, uh, in many cases, tend to expand and grow, partly because there are powerful actors involved who have built them. There are contracts to be won. Um, and there is also interoperability. So the idea is that the ESCOM system, for example, well, once you start building it, you've got to extend it to all of the counties for it to feel like it's going to actually be effective. So you transition it from an opt-in system for local law enforcement to a mandatory system. And once you've built this thing, well, it really makes sense to link it up to the FBI database because you'll have more information and you'll be able to better track the flow of the target. And once you've linked it to that database, you want to link it to the DHS database. So these systems also have their, their own logic. E-Verify is a good example. So this is a federal uh, system which is supposed to uh, identify people who are being employed um, but don't have documentation that should, should enable them to be employed. Well, Congress's audit of the federal E-Verify system says that it's, I, I can't remember if it's 54% effective or 54% fails, but either way. Um, so it's not a system that works very well, and yet uh, more dollars continue to be poured into it, uh, and it continues to be expanded to more and more employers. I think we also need to understand the way that the criminalization of immigration in the U.S. is part of what Omi and Winant would call a racial project. So it's also about the reproduction and maintenance of whiteness and the, and the racial hierarchy uh, of the United States of America. So if you look at immigration policy over the long run uh, in the U.S., the U.S. Ha the US has an extensive history of uh, deciding not to let in people of color and privileging, uh, you know, letting in uh, people who could be assimilated to whiteness. Um, in fact, the first U.S. immigration policy was really the Chinese Exclusion Act. I think we also need to think about the role of heteronormativity and patriarchy in the criminalization of immigration in the U.S. So this is the idea that there's a particular group of people who are desirable immigrants, and it's not only that they're white. They're also highly educated and they're high-skilled workers, right? Um, so they're middle class, they're educated and skilled, they're cisgendered, they're definitely HIV negative, um, they're straight and they're able-bodied. Um, and straight, I'm mentioning that because, for example, one of the paths to regularization of your status is through marriage, but only opposite gender marriage is acceptable at the federal level, which means you have a systematic exclusion um, of uh, same gender loving people. Um, and of good moral character, right? So this is actually a clause from Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which was the Obama's executive order, which allows some people who arrived uh, to the US uh, as minors, were brought here as, you know, as children by their parents, um, they can uh, apply for or could apply for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival and receive a legal status if they were of good moral character. And this was interpreted to mean uh, that they hadn't been arrested, basically. And finally, um, if we're talking about these larger systems that structure immigration in the U.S., I think we should remember that 
the United States of America continues to be an ongoing project of settler colonialism. So as native peoples were displaced by European empire and migration, there was an ongoing process of expanding, consolidating, and controlling the borders of the nation state. And the border doesn't just mean the physical border along you know, US-Mexico border, Canadian border. It also functions internally. And if you're interested in more on sort of this history um, and theorizing the progression of the militarization of border systems, both in the US as well as in other places around the world, I recommend this book, Undoing Border Imperialism, uh, by, by Harsha Walia. OK, so that sounds pretty dire, right? But so what is, so in this context, what does the immigrant rights movement do? What do immigrant rights organizations and networks uh, and people uh, do to, to function, to operate, to gain visibility, to tell their story, and to try and shift uh, all of these systems? Well, to understand how that works, we have to look a little bit at the complicated and rapidly transforming media ecology. So the immigrant rights movement is functioning in the context of an Eng English language mass media system which is, on the one hand, uh, extremely negative. So for example, here's an image from Fox News in, uh, the, during the 2006 mobilizations against the Sensenbrenner bill. Um, um, this was one of the largest series of street mobilizations in US history, actually, when millions of people came out in cities like Chicago and New York and Los Angeles, but also in a lot of smaller, uh, you know, second-tier cities that hadn't necessarily seen major mobilization in the past. Uh, streets were filled for months with people protesting against this bill, which was ultimately defeated. But here's Fox News, perfect chance to arrest illegal immigrants, right? So they're out in the streets, let's round them up. Never mind that the US Constitution provides freedom of assembly for people regardless of their citizenship or documentation status. Um, on the other hand, we do have a center-left media which occasionally pays attention to the immigration uh, you know, problem in the US. And so here you have you know, Time magazine uh, with a cover story with Jose Antonio Vargas and a, a group of other um, you know, undocumented folks and activists. Um, but the, even the center-left media, which is sometimes sympathetic, tends to paint immigration in terms of the balances between border security uh, and a path to citizenship. You'll, that's a, probably a familiar phrase. If you, if you follow immigration at all. And it tends to paint a picture of good immigrants and bad immigrants. So there's a narrative of, well, we've got to choose. Uh, clearly, there's something wrong here. But we've got to figure out who can stay and who we've got to get rid of. At the same time, the last decade has seen a rapid growth of power in the Spanish language mass media. So these are nationwide and, in some cases, uh, hemisphere-wide uh, corporate networks of uh, television and print and radio which often do support and provide a much more nuanced discussion of what's happening, happening with the immigrant rights movement and with immigration policy. So Univision, Telemundo, La Opinion will all regularly cover uh, not just immigration policy, but the movement itself and the effects on everyday people and so on. Um, and in fact, at certain moments, the Spanish language mass media has played a role in actively encouraging people to come out and participate in the movement and call people out into the street. And probably the most famous case of that is in the 2006 anti-Sensenbrenner mobilizations when Spanish language commercial uh, locutores or radio DJs um, 
who normally compete with each other for, for airtime all got together and through conference calls shared airtime to encourage everybody to come out and mobilize against Sensenbrenner and, and defeat it. And I think we also have to talk about the role that community media plays. So the English language mass media, Spanish language mass media are powerful actors for this movement, but community media plays a real role too. So there are literally thousands of local um, community radio stations, community newspapers, local websites, um, and other forms of media that are actually quite important to folks uh, participating in the immigrant rights movement. And so here's one example um, of a student organizer talking about the important role in terms of legitimacy that their organization built by appearing in the local, um, in this case, uh, Brazilian, uh, you know, Brazilian paper, or in El Planeta. And of course, social media. So we pay a lot of attention uh, around here to the role that new technologies and social media especially play in enabling uh, rapid aggregation and participation in social mobilization. But what I'm really interested in talking about is the way that people who are active in a movement think about social media as being one piece of a broader puzzle that they need to uh, engage with. It's a tool that they use uh, to become visible. And so this is a great quote about somebody using Twitter to gain coverage in, um, in broadcast media, basically. So, you know, I could send a reporter a tweet and I'll get a much better response than if I sent them a press release. And again, I'm, I'm pulling these quotes out, but these are examples of themes that emerged from the interviews that I did while doing this, this process, as well as my own understanding from participating as an actor in this movement. So there's a complicated media ecology, and all of these pieces are function functioning at the same time. And people who are involved in social mobilization think about you know, what they need to do and how these things are going to work together. And I call that process transmedia organizing. Of course, I'm riffing here on the idea of transmedia storytelling that Marsha Kinder first developed in thinking about the flow of branded and gendered commodities. She's writing about uh, the 80s and the early 90s, and she's looking at uh, for example, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is a comic book which becomes a cartoon, which becomes a lunchbox, which becomes toys that you can purchase. And so she was really interested in how um, you know, brands were uh, creating universes and story worlds that people could participate in from a number of different locations. But she was also looking at how that process produced a certain type of um, consumer identity in young children, as well as a particular type of gendered identity. And Henry Jenkins would later take this idea and talk about it as the key form of, uh, of, of media in a converged media environment. And he's especially looking at what happens with entertainment properties uh, and narrative storytelling as you create, uh, again, you create story worlds, you have multiple platforms through which people might engage in, uh, in the universe that you're constructing and you have different pieces of narrative that, that people might follow. But so I, I'm interested in the way that social movements are also responding to the, the transformation of the media ecology that Jenkins is looking at. And so they're doing work that's cross-platform. And they're creating spaces that are participatory. So they're inviting people in the base of the social movement to take part in the production of the story of the movement itself. Right? So it's not just a central committee of 
the, of the mobilization deciding what story is going to go out there. It's, it's, uh, it's a participatory process. Ideally, it's rooted in community action. And I'll talk a little bit later about what happens when that isn't the case. Um, but this means that the story that's being told is actually um, responding to the needs of the movement at that particular moment and accountable to the base of the movement uh, whose story is being told. And finally, I really want to emphasize that for many people who take part in this type of media production process, this is a transformative thing in the sense that individuals gain new skills. They build leadership capacity. They come into their own as, um, as movement actors and as organizers through the process of making media. And I think that this is a piece that's often not talked about, and it's, it's deeply understudied, uh, both by media scholars and also, also by social movement scholars. And so as people think about um, you know, this relationship between movements and media, I think we really need to go a lot deeper in looking at what happens to people who take part in media production in a social movement context. For many people, it deepens their engagement um, and transforms them into lifelong activists. So in the immigrant rights movement, let's look at these different components of this framework that I've laid out. So this work is cross-platform. There are posters and mixed media and films. There are mobile applications that movement actors are developing. But the point is not to just you know, list or catalog all of the different kinds of media that people are making. I think what I'm really trying to emphasize here is that it, it, it's not that people just happen to make these things in these different platforms. There's explicit cross-platform strategy, right? So here's one organizer talking about how, well, yeah, we, we make sure to have the Spanish-language TV networks there. And then when they cover it and it goes up on their website, we make sure we take that and we push it out via social media because the first is going to reach our parents and an older generation, and the next is going to reach you know, our peers and younger people. And there are a lot of examples and quotes like this from, uh, you know, from these interviews. It's participatory, right? My name is Cindy. I'm 21 years old. I'm undocumented, I'm unafraid, and I'm unapologetic. On March 10, 2011, we are going to have undocumented youth proclaim their undocumented status. They will tell everyone that they should not be sorry for being in the United States, that they should not apologize for getting an, an education, that they should not be sorry for their parents trying to make a living in the United States. And by coming out, we share our story. We put a face to this issue. We, we are human. We are not here asking for acceptance. We are asking for change. Coming out means telling a friend, a loved one, a classmate, a teacher, something that otherwise we would have said private. It is using our lives and stories as a political tool for change. So you'll see these examples of people, um, and this was a call for people to participate in a street mobilization in Chicago in 2011. Um, and so the call involved an actual physical street action, which was covered widely both by Spanish language and English language mass media. It also involved a Tumblr, so the images of people saying, my name is so-and-so and I'm undocumented, um, those all became still images that appeared on a Tumblr that a lot of people who couldn't make it to that you know, particular street action participated in. And then it also became a video which was later remixed um, into a number of other projects, as we'll see. And the idea of using coming out as undocumented as a political strategy, um, of course, is something that comes from the LGBTQ movement. And it's no accident that that's the case. So we talked earlier about the heteronormativity of U.S. immigration policy. Well, that's part of what produces um, a large percentage of leaders 
uh, in the immigrant rights movement who identify as queer or as gay or as lesbian. Um, although there's a much longer you know, history of people participating in social movements through queer identity, but in this case there's a particular you know, structural political reason why that would be the case. And this is an example um, of, of a poster by Julio Salgado uh, about undocu-queer identity. So folks who are both undocumented and queer identified increasingly becoming visible saying that they're you know, coming out, uh, on the one hand coming out to folks in the LGBT community as undocumented and also coming out to people in the immigrant rights movement as queer. I talked about this already. So ideally, the media strategies of a movement that's engaging in transmedia organizing are also rooted in community action. In other words, you're not just generating visibility and likes and views and media attention just for the sake of it. You're doing it because it's tied to a particular uh, action that you're taking or a particular ask that you, that you have. These are uh, images from uh, live streams of sit-ins. And there's a long history of this that we don't really have time to go into, but um, for example, the one in the middle here, um, this is a youth stream of undocumented youth sitting in at the Denver campaign headquarters of Obama in 2012. And so um, this youth stream had thousands of simultaneous views. The action itself then was covered by, uh, by again, by Spanish language broadcast media first and later by English language media. And of course, it was widely circulated on social media. And what's interesting about this is that the asks, of course, at the time was for executive action by Obama to grant some type of relief to undocumented youth um, without waiting for Congress to pass a bill. And that goal was actually achieved. So by sitting in in swing state campaign headquarters of the Obama administration, uh, DREAMers, undocumented youth, were able to force Obama to issue the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals you know, policy. And uh, now people are starting to talk about uh, the need for, uh, for another series of direct actions to force executive action, especially since there's, there's no way that legislation can pass through the, uh, the Congress that we have now. And ideally, transmedia organizing is accountable to the base of the movement. So this is a quote about a frame shift that happened last year among undocumented youth organizers. So at, at a National Congress uh, of DREAM Act organizers, there are you know, a lot of things go on, but one of the things that happens is that people who are participating in this movement talk about what's the story that we want to tell, what's the narrative that we have. And one of the decisions that was made last year um, was to say, we don't want to continue to reproduce this narrative of, I was brought here through no fault of my own. Because that's a narrative that opens the door to criminalizing the parents of these young people themselves. And so through a whole series of sort of you know, conversations and discussions, um, as well as battles on social media, as well as you know, face-to-face meetings, really a sort of consensus emerges from the community of organizers that are most active in a particular social movement formation to say, well, this is the narrative that's going to be most conducive um, to the political strategy that we actually have. So one, one strategy, which, de- which depends on painting yourself as an un- undocumented youth um, as being here through no fault of your own, is to say, let's just pass a bill which will naturalize the status of people who were brought here uh, you know, as children. 
Another political strategy is to say, no, we need to naturalize our parents as well, and that means there's 11 to 12 million people who need to be included in the reform. So literally, the narrative that you're reproducing uh, is going to affect uh, you know, the bill that you're pushing for. And we'll come back to that in a minute. And finally, it's transformative, right? So many people who are taking part in this movement are constantly engaging in media workshops and skill shares, teaching one another uh, how to do media work, whether that's through hands-on workshops like this, this poster of uh, Edepska doing a workshop at the UCLA Labor Center, where people learn how to use the Vosmob tool, uh, or this undocumentation uh, workshop in art, poetry, and film, um, where people, you can see here is an image of someone learning screen printing and someone learning how to produce video. So this is a very common thing, and I would say not only in the immigrant rights movement, but, but more broadly in social movement practices. There are social movement media practices of building and sharing the capacity of others in the movement to make media and to tell stories. Now I argue that this is something that happens across social movements, and I have um, a paper actually about the Occupy movement uh, called Mike Check, Media Practices in the Occupy Movement that you can check out at that bit.ly. And some of you were actually at the talk last year where I, where I presented this work and looked at Occupy through this lens of transmedia organizing. I also don't think that it's something that's unique to present-day social movements. So uh, Rogelio Alejandro Lopez, who's here, where are you? Right here. <laughs> this is hilarious because I just saw Rogelio at USC uh, last week. But um, so his work and his master's thesis here at CMS was looking at media practices in the farm worker movement. So Rogelio dug in the crates and went into the archives of the UFW and found this really compelling and complicated set of media practices that, that farm workers engaged in uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, including uh, participatory forms of media like Teatro Campesino. Um, people's theater, um, you know, and so on and, and so forth, across platforms, participatory, linked to the actions that they were taking. And finally, um, I'm, I'm working with a team that's just about to put out a report on transformative media organizing in LGBTQ and two-spirit movements uh, across the United States. And this is a combination of um, survey data as well as a nationwide, sorry, interview data as well as a nationwide survey of over 3,000 organizations um, who work on LGBTQ and two-spirit uh, rights and issues talking about how they use media in their work. And we found that it's very similar to what, uh, to what we're describing here, this, this broader process. Okay, so now I'm going to move to the, the last part of the talk. And so this is the, um, this is the last analytical chapter in the book. And this is about professionalization and accountability in transmedia organizing. And I'm interested in looking at professionalization in, in sort of two different uh, paths. One of them is social movement professionalization. So there's a whole literature in social movement studies about the professionalization of social movements over time. So McCarthy and Zald talk about the professionalization of uh, civil rights organizations, so that how you, you sort of transition from organic, bottom-up, uh, decentralized networks of people to uh, incorporated organizations that have typically vertical leadership structures. 
Suzanne Stagenborg talks about that as well uh, as professionalization of the feminist movement. Um, and Insight, Women, Gender Nonconforming, and Trans People of Color Against Violence, which is a nationwide uh, network of radical feminists of color, um, convened a conference in 2004 called The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. And there's also a book by the same name that I highly recommend if you're interested in looking at the history of this, of this process of professionalization of social movements, specifically in the United States. Um, this is a must read. And so it really um, kind of looks at what are the, um, what happens over time as social movements become 501c3s. So for example, one of the direct impacts of becoming a 501c3 uh, nonprofit tax status, you know, registered organization in the US is that you literally are not allowed to advocate for a particular political candidate. So the argument in this book and this conference and it's borne out by social movement scholarship is that over time, uh, movement organizations that begin with structural critiques and proposals for societal transformation as they narrow down to a particular uh, siloed issue focus, as they do the dance with funders, as they register for 501c3 status, uh, they move away from those proposals um, and to an increasingly depoliticized, de uh, typically service-oriented um, function. Which doesn't mean that 501c3s don't do great work and that services aren't important, but it is an interesting dynamic that social movement scholars have observed in one movement after another over time. In parallel, there's a professionalization of transmedia production. Um, so when I first started writing about this stuff, trans, transmedia um, production was sort of this, uh, I guess, hot, hot new topic that people were beginning to write about. Uh, since then, the scene has changed. So by 2010, the Producers Guild of America recognized a transmedia producer. It's, a, it's an official you know, credit. You can get a transmedia producer credit uh, you know, on a film um, or on a, on a transmedia project, sorry. Um, and although typically these, these positions are off, they're often attached to films. Um, and we've seen the emergence of a whole layer of transmedia producers. So companies, firms, um, who specialize in transmedia production, who you can hire, whether you're a, a corporate brand trying to produce a transmedia advertising campaign, or you're a film producer who wants to build a cross-platform strategy. Um, so there's an emerging network of professionals who are transmedia producers. And so what I'm going to talk about now is three professional transmedia immigrant rights campaigns, all of which appeared in the last two years. And I'm going to look at uh, each one sort of in turn and talk a little bit about the way that it was produced and how it fits into this broader space of transmedia organizing uh, that I was analyzing earlier on. So the first one is Define American. Uh, Define American is a transmedia campaign by Jose Antonio Vargas. Uh, so Jose Antonio Vargas is a um, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who himself identifies as undocumented and queer. Um, he's on the cover of Time magazine, and he launched this campaign, uh, Define American. Hi, I'm Julian. My name is David. I'm from Chicago. I'm 
So this project um, sort of launches with a website, Define American, with that video. And you can see that there are there's sort of pieces uh, of media that has been produced by the movement that are remixed and incorporated into that video. So you might have noticed that some of those images from the Tumblr from the 2011 coming out as undocumented mobilization in Chicago make it in there, as well as sort of you know, other pieces from across the web. Um, and then Jose Antonio Vargas takes uh, materials that people submit through this Define American site and reworks them into a feature-length film called Documented, uh, which recently, well, first it did the festival circuit, and then it recently aired on CNN. Um, and so this is a feature-length film that centers his story, but it also weaves through material that was produced uh, through this participatory process. So I think what's interesting about this project is that it's led by you know, someone who themselves identifies as queer and undocumented, is part of the movement, uh, Define American hires a number of people who also themselves are uh, identify as undocumented youth uh, to participate in the production process. And um, so it, it's interesting. It also has recently come under some criticism, and we'll talk about this in a second, around the framing, again, that good immigrant, bad immigrant framing. Um, so we'll, we'll look at uh, an open letter in a minute that some undocumented youth wrote to Jose Antonio Vargas about the way that he... He talks about that. But it is rooted in and grounded in, uh, to a large degree, folks who are themselves participating in this movement uh, and who themselves are going to be direct beneficiaries of any you know, policy shift that happens. So the second transmedia immigrant rights campaign that happens over the last two years is The Dream Is Now. So this, this is a project that's funded by Laureen Powell Jobs, uh, Steve Jobs' widow, has this group called the Emerson Collaborative that uh, funds a number of different things, uh, one of which is immigration reform. And they hire Davis Guggenheim, who's the producer of An Inconvenient Truth and Waiting for Superman, to, um, to produce this 30-minute film, The Dream Is Now, linked with a transmedia campaign inviting people to participate in the production process. And I'll show you a short clip of that. Bigger than a website, deeper than a documentary, more powerful than a petition. It's a story about people. Instead of calling them illegals, let's call them occupiers or trespassers or invaders or squatters. The same day that I graduated, I checked my mail and I had gotten a full scholarship. I get a call from the admissions office. We're really sorry, but you can't get your scholarship anymore. You have orders. So I'm not going to show the whole thing, but so the, the production value is much higher. Um, they, have, they have Foley sound on this. They have color correction. Um, they have really nice cameras. They have a large team. And so it's, they produce this beautiful piece of media. Um, the 30-minute film was actually screened uh, in the White House just before the Senate passed the Comprehensive Immigration Reform Bill. So they build a lot of sort of visibility around this project. Uh, it's very nicely done. but there are some real challenges with the way that it's put together. So 
The first thing that happens is when they initially launch the project, um, when you arrive on the Dream Is Now site, there's a sort of pop-up, you know, a modal box comes up and it asks you to sign a petition for immigrant rights. Well, the petition they ask you to sign for immigrant rights uh, asks you to sign a petition encouraging the passage of a standalone Dream Act. And so if you remember, we just talked a minute ago about how the previous summer, uh, undocumented youth had met and decided that they were no longer going to be pushing for a standalone Dream Act. They didn't want to throw their parents under the bus. The political ask of the movement had evolved and was going to be for a comprehensive immigration reform bill. So this project, uh, although it looks very beautiful um, and does have you know, potentially an impact at the level of the Senate, is decoupled from accountability to the grassroots of the movement whose story it's supposed to be telling. And it, there's this interesting moment when a lot of organizers and activists that I interviewed and talked to said, yeah, when that campaign came out, we called them and we said, hey, can you, just, can you change that petition ask? You know, we don't want to do that anymore. Um, you know, what's up? Can you change that? And they just got a lot of pushback. And ultimately, uh, the Dream Is Now did shift the ask that they had, but it took several months for them to do so. And so during the height of their visibility, they were pushing a narrative that um, you know, folks who were most directly affected had already decided consciously they wanted to move beyond. So more resources, higher production value, transmedia activism campaign, unaccountable to the movement base in certain kinds of ways. And again, my point here is not to say the Dream Is Now are bad people, or this wasn't a beautiful piece of media, or it wasn't powerful. The point is just to note the dynamic of the professionalization of transmedia organizing and what that means in terms of accountability to the base of the social movement. Which brings us to the third and final example um, of uh, professionalized transmedia organizing around immigrant rights, which launched last year. So this is forward.us. Um, meet the leaders behind the movement. So here's Mark Zuckerberg. Um, got LinkedIn uh, CTO and so on and so forth. Bill Gates uh, later joined this. Um, so this is the Silicon Valley's throwing their hat into the ring of passing a comprehensive immigration reform bill. And so they launched Forward.us. It's a transmedia campaign which invites people to participate, share their stories, and so on. And I'll show a short clip from one of the clips they launched with. Skip forward a little here. High-skilled visas, right? So we need to increase the number of high-skilled visas that are available to tech companies in Silicon Valley. And I'm not, that's, that's a good thing. I mean, I agree with that as well. But hold on a second here. We're not getting the video. The, the punch, this is the punchline too. Right? Oh, come on. Try that one more time. 
Okay, any guesses as to who some of these 400 organizations across the country fighting for immigration reform might be? The U.S. Chamber of Commerce? Yeah, sure. So. Oh, come on. <laughs> Rewind. This is, it's, it's really, you've got to see it. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. So moving on. Right. So now, so here's the thing. We're sort of, you know, laughing and so on, but of course, you know, it's in Silicon Valley interest to pass immigration reform that includes more visas for high-skilled tech workers. Um, and I don't particularly have a problem with that, and neither do a lot of the immigrant rights activists that I work with and talk to and interview. But what people do have a problem with is the actual policy platform of, of Forward.us. So the first plank in Forward's policy platform is secure our borders, providing law enforcement the tools necessary to secure the border, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the problem with a secure the border first immigration policy is that we know what securing the borders does. It pushes people to cross the US-Mexico border in ever more dangerous areas of the desert so that more people die each year as they cross. And we have well-documented stats around that. So you know, human beings as a species migrate, we move from place to place, and borders and walls and militarized borders and walls uh, increase deaths when people uh, migrate. Uh, they support E-Verify, so that system that the Congressional Audit found was Again, I wish I could remember this. It's either 54% failure or 54% effective, um, with a very high rate of uh, false negatives, actually. Um, sorry, false positives. Um, they also, of course, support the E-Verify system because Silicon Valley will get the contracts to develop the E-Verify system. So you have, a, again, a very sophisticated transmedia campaign. In fact, when they launched Forward.us, they launched a uh, nation builder, which is a very powerful... Uh, constituent relationship management system which is designed to do cross-platform organizing and to gather really good data about every contact that you have with people across platforms like Facebook and Twitter and email and so on. Um, and they actually launched it with, with Forward.us. So they have challenges in terms of the way that they frame what they're doing, the messaging, but also the political position that they take are harmful to the vast majority of the 12 million undocumented people uh, you know, who live and work and love in the United States. So they're unaccountable to the base of the movement that they claim to be talking about, and they're actively erasing the history of that movement and replacing it with the logos of, uh, you know, of tech firms. So I painted a very neat little picture of, okay, so here's three transmedia organizing campaigns. Each one has more resources than the last, and each one is less accountable to the base of the movement. Right? Well, that would be a really nice theoretical construct, of course, you know, things are messy. So in the time that I was writing this final chapter that laid out this argument, you know, some things happened. Like Zuckerberg and Jose Antonio Vargas teamed up uh, for Forward.us to promote Jose Antonio Vargas's film, uh, you know, documented. So the one that I, the example that I held up is the model of accountable transmedia organizing uh, that's accountable to the base of the movement is now partnering with the one that I'm painting as, you know, the most distant. At the same time, Undocumented youth organizers wrote an open letter to Jose Antonio Vargas, um, basically taking him to task for speaking for uh, people who, um, you know, who he, who he really wasn't sympathetic with. So for reproducing the good immigrant, bad immigrant narrative, for talking about how we've got to find a path for 
you know, people who have, who have been here and who have worked hard and who just want to live the American dream. And so they're talking about how, well, you know, you don't represent all of us. There are many of us who we, we may not be this model. We may not be wanting nothing more than assimilation into, um, uh, into the quote-unquote American dream, but we are humans and we also need to be included in this conversation. So I'll just end with some questions. You know, do greater resources always mean reduced community accountability? Is that, is that a natural part of the process of building resources for transmedia organizing campaigns? This is one, documentary filmmakers ask me about this a lot. So they say, well, what are you saying? We should have a committee of people from the community who are going to tell us what, what story we have to tell. And that sounds like it's going to turn into a really terrible documentary. Right? So no one wants to have their, their, their baby, their story that they're telling in a compelling way um, you know, dictated to them by some committee of community members. And I think that that's overly simplistic. I think that there are ways to develop accountability mechanisms that don't require an entire committee to sign off on you know, each piece of your narrative. And I think one of the things I'm trying to do in the next stage of work um, is document people who are doing exactly that who are figuring out accountability mechanisms that allow for artistic freedom and for powerful human storytelling, but also um, have the action ask that's meaningful at the particular moment for the, for the movement whose story they're telling. And ultimately, I think what, you know, what I'm really trying to get to is this question, which is you know, framed initially by disability rights activists, um, which is how do we build a world of nothing about us without us? Okay, thank you. So, um, I don't know, I didn't see Sophia come in. Oh, you're over there. Um, so I'd like to now invite uh, Sophia Campos to come up and uh, share this space with me. So Sophia is board chair of United We Dream. Um, which is the largest, the nation's largest network of un, undocumented youth um, who've been organizing for years um, around all of this. And I just wanted to invite you, thank you for coming, to um, come up and share this space with me and respond and uh, really use the time however you want. And then after about 10 minutes, we'll open it up to, or however long you want, we'll open it up to questions. Yeah, I'm most interested in what y'all want to say in, in, in your reactions. Um, I guess just really quickly, I think this is a very helpful <laughs> piece of literature. Um, I've known Sasha for a while now, and I know that you have been working with a lot of movement leaders, a lot of activists. Um, and so I think it's really amazing for us to have some help documenting our movement and what happens internally. I've had interactions with all three of those groups. Um, and it's hard to talk about this stuff. It's First of all, hard to make space, make time to talk about these things in a critical way with other undocumented organizers, right? We have conversations about this on the side, um, but we would not have the capacity to write a book <laughs> like you did. At least nobody that I know would have that capacity right now. Um, and so something that came up for me at the end there is just balancing our politics, our critical reflection and discussion um, as we do this everyday work and as we have this everyday experience, right? Because it's not just doing this work on a daily basis um, and building capacity and organizing, but it's also being undocumented, right? And feeling um, personal reactions to every time that some professional, 
whether it be corporate or not corporate kind of media effort comes alive. Um, and so I do know that when Dream is now, I was one of the people that they, they talked to. I was at the labor center and it was like many conversations of having the same conversation. Hmm. Um, and that is just one example of many, right? Like you said, they're not the only ones that do that, but it, it can become very draining. And then it can develop some kind of skepticism over time um, about new projects that come out, right? And you then expect the same questions and then you expect to have the same conversations over and over again. And that can be very tiring, like I said, um, and, and just draining, uh, also given the limited energy that we already have. Um, I wanted to also just share, um, I think the media piece here is really, really interesting. Um, in your book, you say that it's uh, media making is part and parcel of movement, movement building. Um, and I think that's definitely been proven true, especially by immigrant youth. Um, having the internet is really what allowed us to connect between states, right? So in 2008, um, before United We Dream, we didn't know that there were other people like us, that there were undocumented people. I was in California. I didn't know there were undocumented people in Florida too. I just knew that we had ideas at UCLA, we had the California Dream Network, um, and we had other things starting to you know, come alive in California. Um, but through the internet, we were able to connect across states, and that was something really powerful, really amazing, that then we took to a whole other level during 2010, Push for the Dream Act, and that's when you saw everybody come alive, and it was like a wildfire, right, of undocumented people, not just coming out, but organizing with each other and collaborating um, kind of overnight. Um, and so everybody had their profile picture as that lame duck uh, goose when we were pushing for the Federal Dream Act in, in December, and you could just see the escalation and feel it online, but also feel the vibration of that in real life, right? You knew it wasn't something that was just people signing petitions. You knew people were making the calls, and I was out on a Bruin walk on campus making sure that people were signing the petition with me and making the calls in front of me, right? And I knew that other people across the country were doing that too. And I think that was part of the power of that media, as well as allowing us to build our own narrative, um, which I guess just another reflection that you sparked for me is you can feel when it's, when it's the actual community being affected by it, you can feel it when they're the ones constructing the narrative versus when it's somebody else doing it for them or even you know, asking them questions to build some kind of narrative. For me, I can really feel it, especially having been part of the, of the movement of the community for, for so long. And I think that is something really, not just valuable, but like critical <laughs> to actually uh, moving in the way, in the direction that we want to go, to actually making the change that we need. Um, so, I think I'm gonna just stop there for now. Um, I'm looking forward to actually coming up with mechanisms for that accountability. Like I said, it's been a long time on my heart, on my mind, but um, the capacity and the time to actually think of those mechanisms is really hard to do, so it's helpful to have people who are media savvy um, and who actually care enough, though, to talk and build with us, thinking about those tools with us, right? Um, but I know that there's other undocumented folks in here that would also love to hear from and hear your reactions, so I would encourage that as well. Thank you. Um, I want to ask a little bit, Cynthia, you just mentioned it, um, that this question of media making as getting people more involved in activism, um, it can be specific to um, the movement, but beyond it. Um, so, Sophia, you were mentioning that in some ways it connects people across borders, um, that, that, that at least in your experience it has allowed you to do that, but if either of you could talk a little bit further about what else media making, why why is it actually causes people to get involved? Is there some connection to, I don't know, maybe these community events bring people together? 
other in some ways to like a hands-on workshop or something like that to make something um, or, or any other yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different answers to that question. And I also, I want to highlight that I'm, I'm not trying to argue, although I'm a media studies scholar, that media is the most important mechanism for movement building at all. Um, I'm just trying to point out that it's one way that many people find their way into participation in social movements. Um, and so I think that you know, one of the reasons is that when you sit down to try and figure out how to tell your story, with others who've lived the same experience, part of what you have to do is you have to talk about it and share and compare your experiences and look at them in relationship to the larger structures that you're struggling against. So through shared processes of creating a narrative and storytelling, um, people come to actually you know, build a shared social movement identity in that process. Um, you, yeah, what do you think? I think the, the story building piece, not just story building, but telling my own story, right? I also wanted to know, like, we're not also just one community, one body, one mind, right? Mm. Um, and that has become more and more apparent after we started a national network, not just United We Dreaming, but a national network of undocumented young people, right? A, a community being built. We have many different opinions, um, many different critiques and politics, and so I think that's also the power of media. It allows us to do that freely and to do that relatively easily. Um, and, and I think that's beautiful, and it also attracts a lot of um, desire to become part of that growing, organic right, creation. Um, I think also, given our community, a lot of people feel isolated, right? Part of being documented is living in fear, living as if you are not worthy, right? Living in isolation, because that's what the system is set up to make you feel like, and make you experience. And so through media, we were able, like I said, to tell our stories, but also connect our stories with others. And even if you have, if you, even if you're in Alabama, right, and you feel like there's nobody else in your situation, people aren't coming out as undocumented, unafraid, and unapologetic, you can see other people in other states doing that, and that helps you just a little bit. Maybe it helps you a lot, but at the very least, you know that you're not the only one going through the hardships and the struggles, and that you're seeing other people who have become empowered in their own way, and maybe you can go through some kind of process like that, too. Over here. Well, this is a remarkably one-sided presentation. It, uh, you're obviously, you make no secret of the fact that you're an advocate of publicists for illegal immigration. Uh, and that's, you know, your privilege. But there's many other aspects to this that uh, aren't even presented. So the question becomes, uh, the new social media is equally neutral as other forms of previous technology, isn't it? Those who believe in the rule of law and secure borders and oppose illegal immigration can use these means uh, to promote their side of the story as well, can't they? And uh, prevent, you know, emotional appeals like telling someone's story. You can make up any story, please, as far as that goes, without it being in any way verified. To counter those types of uh, emotional appeals with more rational types of arguments against unrestricted illegal immigration. Well, in answer to your question, I think that certainly the right has widely used every form of media at their disposal. Um, to make appeals against migration, uh, I would uh, disagree with you that the counter-arguments are rational and don't appeal to emotion. In fact, most of what happens uh, in the right, and you see this especially in right-wing talk radio, is you see explicit appeals to race hatred um, as one of the key mechanisms of mobilizing anti-immigrant sentiment uh, in the US today. I'm just sharing my experience as someone who research. I'm sharing my experience as someone who 
extensively researches uh, this area and has looked at media on, media on both sides. But absolutely, you're correct that anyone can use transmedia organizing to try and uh, sway people to their side and to mobilize opinion. The thing is, I think it's a mistake to sort of imagine that there's an equal playing field between different political actors in any situation, whether it's migration or, uh, or another argument. So there are large, powerful, institutional, uh, and state and corporate actors who have particular positions that they're trying to advance and control large segments of the broadcast media, which continues, despite the excitement that we all have about social media, uh, to shape the minds and opinions uh, of most people in the US. So broadcast TV still shifts uh, popular opinion uh, in a way that the other uh, channels don't. So let's, do you, do you want to answer this or should we go to another no, question? I was going to say, if you ever want to like, meet up for coffee or something, because I know I've seen you at a few events before and I would love to just get to know your story, like honestly, genuinely. Um, so I just wanted to offer that because I, I don't want to miss you before you go. Thank you. Yeah. Ian. Yeah, uh, Ian Condry uh, here in Friday Studies writing. My question is about framing, and, and I, it's very interesting. I'm just curious to hear what new ideas there might be about framing or the framing this debate. Uh, you know, it does strike me that, that you know, this amnesty law-breaking argument has had a, a lot of traction. Um, and it, it's always been very confusing to me that it's outweighed the contributions that immigrants have made, you know, not only historically, which is quite obvious, or, uh, but, but even now, right, the, the, the idea that somehow immigrants are taking away from uh, America has always struck me as just a bizarre argument. And, and I don't understand why we've had such trouble making that case. And, and I don't know, I guess, I'm, so that's, that's one question. Sort of, are, are there new ways to frame? And it's related to sort of a second question, which is, do, does this framing need to be attentive to different contexts. I mean, on the one hand, I think the dreamers was a really interesting idea, like it got through, and, and it, the idea that we shouldn't be punishing the children, uh, you know, is, is a really powerful one. And, you know, I was just noticing that the dreamers is now a word that's recognized in the media, and it's used, and it, it's, a, it's an idea that's gotten traction. But I can also very much see the, you know, how it does throw the parents under the bus, and it does leave out lots of people, and, and I can see the, the, the desire to be more diverse. But I'm just wondering how you think about that balance. Is there, a, is there a kind of scale of framing that goes on? Do we need different frames for different levels of the conversation? Or are we seeking just a, a best, all-inclusive frame? I'm just curious how you're thinking about the most exciting strategies today. Who are you asking? <laughs> oh, there's a lot of thoughts. I mean, that's all politics, right? It's all politics, it's all organizing, it's all power relationships. I think uh, Sasha talking about capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, right? Uh, what was the other word? Settler? Colonialism? Like, it's all of that within this issue, one of many issues that are all interconnected. Um, I think the power of dreamers... Um, was that it was the people directly affected talking for themselves finally after so, like I said, so much time, right, of being in the shadows, being talked about, um, being put as numbers. We were actually able to put the humanity back into the picture, which was critical, is critical moving forward with any framing, I think. Um, so I think that's one big lesson from, from our movement is that just numbers are not going to work within a framing um, conversation. I think it's important to, I think... 
what you have been pointing to, Sasha, um, is that it's important to not lose the radical part of our framing, like radical as in getting to the root of, right? The root of the causes, the root of the consequences, all of those things. When people who are not part of the community, when people who are not interested in being accountable to the community begin framing the issue for us, that's when it gets really easy to stop thinking radically, stop putting out a radical rooted frame. And I think that's dangerous and will not get us where we want to be uh, short term or long term. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's part of the power and part of the requirements that would have to go into any framing. Beyond that, it is very much like a push and pull kind of thing, right? How much can we feasibly win? How much space can we create? So, because we know we're not going to get what we ask for, right? Um, publicly. So, how much space can we create so that we are able to negotiate and at least get some of what we need, what we want now? Because it is a very urgent issue. People are dying. People are getting killed. Um, and it's something that we we need some kind of relief now, right? Not just again for youth, but for more of our community, including mm. my parents. Yeah. So those are just some of the thoughts that initially come to mind. Yeah, and I think that so there's you know there's one answer to the framing question, which is you know if you're a sophisticated political advertising firm, then you'll say, okay, well, what we should do is we should choose the target audiences that you want to reach, and what we'll do is we'll message test a bunch of stuff with each of them, and then we'll try and target each of them uh, with a message that's, you know, that's framed in the way that they were most responsive to. And that's the instrumentalist approach to, that, that imagines media as something that exists outside of uh, movements and mobilizations, which you use to kind of bludgeon people's consciousness into agreement with where you're coming from. Now, it might be effective in a certain short-term, sort of limited way, but I really think that if what you do is you prioritize this idea of the transformative possibilities of media making rather than the instrumental possibilities of how do we best frame for the particular target, what you do is you say, well, let's work with the community that's most directly affected by whatever it is that we're trying to message around and work with them to figure out, well, what, how, what story do you need to tell? What is it? How do you want it to be framed? How do you want to reach people? Um, and that that's what should guide the decision making rather than, uh, than the instrumental approach. I think that's a difficult thing to say because it, it can mean that you produce messages that are less instrumentally effective for certain target uh, segments in the short run. But I do believe that in the long run, what that means is that your entire media strategy is uh, accountable to the movement base, is driven by values and ethics that you want to promote. And I do think that in the long run, that's how you win broader social transformation, not through tightly targeted, um, you know, well, this person cares most about um, high school visas, so we'll only talk about that to them. And I think just to give a concrete example, that that's what happened in 2009, 2010. It wasn't stories that we were putting out there for congressmen whoever, right? Um, it was stories that we were putting out there for each other, and that's what made it, like, spark that wildfire that I was talking about. That's what made me really feel it and want to give it my all, even during midterms or finals that I was going through at UCLA. And I think that, that kind of transformative message, right, rooted message, uh, if it gets to the masses, that's the kind of accountability and civic participation that we need in this country that obviously we don't have, if you look at the elections that just happened, right, most people did not vote, especially young people, who are very unhappy and discontent with the way things are right now. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm impressed with all the, the range of uh, the objectives that range all the way from specific uh, legislation to social transformation, to raising awareness, and so forth. And 
I'm thinking back to civil rights movement and you know the right to go to a university and be on a campus as a specific thing or the right to vote. So I, I'm just, uh, in, in some sense, I don't really have a good question, but I'm, I'm curious about the way in which objectives are formulated and whether there's a sense within movements that, you know, objectives are dangerous to actually formulate too specifically because that gives some kind of, uh, uh, raises some kind of issue or problem or, you know, is there, is there some sort of strategy that you can talk about a little bit as, as you talk about all these different uh, objectives? So that's not a very crisp uh, question, but... <laughs> I think it's an excellent question. I mean, I think so. In you know, um, so first, you know, that's a matter of constant debate with any within any particular social movement. Is you know, what are the objectives going to be? What are we going to try and win in the short term? What are we trying to win in the long term? And what are we comfortable talking about? You know, publicly now versus so that's that's the lifeblood of daily you know work in a movement context. But I think that you're really right to point out, you know, for example, pointing to the civil rights movement, right? So. You win. There's a professional class of political operatives who want us all to think that the way that we move things forward is by choosing one very small, micro-targeted thing, messaging appropriately around it, and we'll move things forward that way. Now, that's one philosophy and one belief, and it may be effective in certain times and places. But there's also a movement-centered understanding of the way that we've moved broader social transformation forward over time. And part of that has been about, it's always been about broad cultural shift and transformation in the story of who's a human being, right? So, you know, feminism, um, civil rights, immigrant rights movement, it's about who do we include, who do we see as another person, right? And that the gay rights movement, and that by transforming people's ideas about who's human, really, then we can move all of these different, you know, particular, the political, you know, policy proposals and pieces will fall into line if we can actually shift uh, the way that people, you know, think. That see, would be my answer. See themselves too, I would say. Mm. A lot of the times, people themselves have lost part of their humanity, and that's what stops them, prevents them from seeing others' humanity. Mm. Um, Jane, and then over here. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is a very rich paper. I really enjoyed it. I have a two-part question. Um, uh, are there alliances made between different immigrant rights across racially? Absolutely. Um, so definitely there are uh, coalitions and concrete organizing work that's happening across different communities of, of migrants. Um, Baji, Black Alliance yeah. for Disimmigration. And also within our network, a lot of Asian undocumented youth have come out and participated in civil disobedience. It is different cultural dynamics. It is a different process but we definitely have built really strong bridges and, and try to support each other as much as we can. Mm. Also very different, um, you know, the culture is not just in ourselves, the young people, but also the parents, right? 
Um, so I think that's also a huge possibility for us to connect our parents into more supportive networks. And I think also it's interesting that um, it's not just with other immigrant groups and other immigrant rights organizers, but there are cross-movement coalitions that form across many you know, different issue areas. Um, so you're, I mean, you're working a lot on that now. Do you want to talk a little bit about yeah, well, yeah. Freedom Side, for example, is one uh, initiative that we started intentionally bringing together black youth organizations who have started to organize a lot more in the recent years, given to crises moments, um, and then also immigrant youth leaders. So bringing together that narrative so that it's not seen as separate, right? Mass incarceration, mass deportations are part of one system, as Sasha already explained. Literally, corporations are making money off of having us in these jails, right? In these beds, filling those cells. Um, and so that's something that I think we have seen as an opportunity and something that's being totally uh, missed <laughs> by other movements or mainstream organizations, whatever it may be. So as young people, we're trying to definitely not just build a narrative, but organize together around that. So thank you so much for your presentation. Uh, I actually usually don't attend presentations by scholars, uh, <laughs> researchers, uh, because over the last 10 years that I've been working, um, I usually folks doing different things. I've told them the things I was sharing. Uh, you know, I, I am a transgender Um And something that I've been thinking about is a lot of this community accountability. Um, and I really appreciate it that you are thinking of this. Um, and I was just wondering, um, what can we do as immigrant organizers to have a, sort of like to clearly communicate with researchers and scholars what we need from them, right? Um, so for example, I have instances where people are like, sign this contract and tell me that they will be anonymous. And they're like, they exchange and they like, I will be anonymous, right? As a benefit. Um, or they will bring lawyers and be like, sign a contract to protect you. But um, these are things that I, I don't see as um, sort of like having a sort of sense of community accountability when it comes to I'm not representing a movement. So I was just wanted to hear some of your, from your perspective, right? Somebody doing research or producing knowledge on immigrant rights What can other folks do? Yeah, thank you so much, and that's a really excellent question, definitely, um, and in this context, too. Um, I think it's a really hard one because there are so many institutional structures that are set up to enable people with privilege, be they media makers or scholars, to extract stories and knowledge from communities and then profit off of them. Um, you know, whether that's commercial profit or it's, um, you know, institutional credibility or whatever the case may be. Um, so I don't think it's an, it's an easy one. Um, one of the things that I try and do, um, so I teach a course here which is called the Collaborative Design Studio. Um, and that course is my attempt to try and figure out um, how to work with MIT students to go through a process of learning how to be a good partner to a community-based organization. And so um, we try and talk a lot about um, how do you do that in that course. Um, one of the things that people do is sort of develop an agreement, like a written agreement together between the community organization and the student you know, design team where it, we try and lay out, okay, what is this project going to be? What are its goals? Um, 
What, are, what is each person's role going to be? Who's going to own this thing that we produce together on the other side of this? Because that's, that's a very frequent thing that happens is in a supposedly participatory design process, researchers will get some ideas from a community and then take it away and turn it into a product and sell it back to them. So, um, so in that course, I do my best to try and provide other models for how to effectively work with an organization in a way that um, everyone can contribute, but that the thing that comes out the other side is one, you know, useful to the organization and, and actually fits with what it's trying to do, and then is, is owned by that organization. And it doesn't always necessarily work out, um, but that's, that's, you know, what I would, that's what I would say. So I do think it's important to have um, more than just informal accountability mechanisms where like, oh yeah, you know, I'm a good person, so I'm going to work with you, and it's going to be all okay on the other side. It's really worth laying out step by step what's going to happen. But as you say, just signing a piece of paper also doesn't guarantee that. So I think we need a broader transformation in sort of the institutional cultures, both in terms of media making, professional media making, and in terms of scholarship, um, where we need to build sort of a general approach and a knowledge of, um, in the case of the academy, um, research justice. So the idea of, well, what is this research for? Whose needs does it serve? How will it be built together? And how will it um, actually advance the needs of those who are the researched? Um, and I think that there's a lot of work to be done there. Oh, jeez. Um. Thank you for asking interesting speech, especially the, the uh, campaign, undocumented campaign. My question is, do you think this campaign can promote the police reform? Yeah, policy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that one of the goals uh, of the immigrant rights movement is certainly policy reform, um, both local policy, like uh, you know, eliminating the secure communities programs and the information sharing between local law enforcement and DHS, um, creating, um, you know, uh, at the city level, there are a number of cities that are passing local legislation. They're sanctuary cities, so they're recognizing that they want to be a place where um, people feel welcome regardless of their documentation status. At the state level, there's a lot of state bills that have been passed by the movement, including um, getting undocumented people access to higher education, for example. Um, and ultimately, yes, there, there will be a uh, federal policy reform. But I think that the, poli the policy pieces are crucial, but they're only one part of what um, ultimately the broader movement is, is moving towards. Yeah, and that's definitely something that's being intentionally cultivated, right, presently in recent years, is whether we get citizen, when we get citizenship, when we win citizenship, right, it can't stop there, both for us or for whoever's left out. Um, so that's something that needs to be cultivated because oftentimes there's this narrative that once you get citizenship, everything is fine, which some citizens in the room might know <laughs> that's not the case, right, all of your problems aren't solved. Um, but it, it has to be intentionally cultivated because that's the American dream narrative, right? And that's something that we have learned to be not true. Should we do one one more, or what, what time is it? Uh, it's about 6.40. Okay, maybe just one, one or two more, Mina. I remember I was also there with you when uh, you showed us uh, the thing, undocumented thing, uh, recently. And uh, I remember also that there was a very hostile criticism uh, from a speaker saying to the director that um, 
the reality is not as you represent here. You can't just cheat us with the tears. And there are like uh, killer or criminal undocumented people in my life, something like that. So, but the director replied him uh, in a oh, very kind of yes. Uh, how can I say? Uh, in a productive way, saying that. Well, I'm glad that we are having this conversation with you, but we are not all like in a criminals. So in a way, this now reminds me uh, the the fact that maybe um, this discourse that we are like more valuable, important, undocumented uh, immigrants is because of the fact that this hostile discourse creates. Do you know what I mean? So I was, I found myself upset here uh, seeing the letter actually written to that director because it opened up lots of debates and it kind of decreases the power of the moment at the same time. <laughs> so I, I just feel that this was a discourse already created by the hostile discourses, not himself. This is just uh, my uh, belief. So what, what is going to happen then? Are they reducing their power. Do you know what I mean? There are more mainstream discourses as well as more radical discourses at the same time uh, from undocumented immigrants. Does it mean losing their power or does it mean strengthening from uh, these debates? What's your idea about it? It's a really difficult trap and this is, um, you know, Ian talked about this earlier, this is the conversation about the power of framing. Right? And so what is the master frame in which you're even having the conversation? And so if someone begins the conversation with a master frame that says, but there are criminals, and you respond, but I'm not a criminal, then you're immediately participating in a discourse that legitimates the uh, ballooning prison system, mass incarceration, uh, and the growth of the entire you know, carceral state. So, but if you don't respond, then uh, you know, the argument would be you're leaving yourself vulnerable to being, you know, pigeonholed in a very powerful, you know, discourse of, about criminality that most people uh, in the U.S. buy into. So I don't think it's easy. It's <laughs> what do you think? It's and it's live. That's my response. Um, I, yeah. And that's part of what I was going to include in my introduction, too. Like, this is kind of putting our dirty laundry, that's the saying, right? dirty laundry out there a little bit, right? Like I said, these are conversations that I've been a part of. Um, these are conversations that we have internally, but have never been like publicly documented in that kind of way. And there's a lot more of that messiness within the movement that's part of building a movement and having it grow. And that's part of the beauty of it too, that we challenge each other, that we push our boundaries. Otherwise you become part of the mainstream and you become normalized and professionalized and that the movement evaporates, I would say. Um, and so I'm sure the civil rights movement had a lot of messiness also, right? And that's something that we're going through. Our movement hasn't reached its peak yet, I would say. Um, we're still evolving, we're still growing, and I don't know where it's going to end, but I do definitely um, hope that we can maintain a, a level of respect with each other within our undocumented community, right? At, at the very least, acknowledging that we we each hold this part of our identity and we, we want the best for our communities, then the question comes in like, well, where is your consciousness at? How long have you been in your process, right? How, how much do you understand the root causes of this? There's all of this, all these parts to it that, are, like I said, are messy and organic. Um, so we'll see where it ends up. I, for one, I'm glad to hear diversity in voices and opinions because that means that people care enough to voice them. 
once you stop hearing those voices, right, once people feel like they're not uh, empowered enough or, or care enough to put those voices out there, for me, that's a ma- an even bigger flag. However, the respect piece, right, is important in maintaining a growing movement, I would say. If we're just attacking each other within it, then, yeah, we're keeping each other down. So so thank you all so much let's end it oh wait wait, wait, wait one more for this great uh, for the talk and the amazing questions and um, you know I've, I've known both of you for, for a very long time now and I just really want to uh, ask what you think the implications of the work in the moment we are now with where you are seeing um, movements influencing each other across the world you know you're seeing hands up Everywhere from you know Hong Kong, uh, democracy protests to Yotinapa uh, in Mexico, um, and we're in a time right now where there is you know the, the hyper militarization of borders everywhere, and um, you know the reassertion of the national boundaries and citizenship. So, how do you? I'm just wondering how you uh, see the the, the work that you're doing, uh, and, and in a more global context, and increasingly mobile, mobile context where messages are moving, uh, the frames are moving so so quickly across nations and. And people are picking up these common themes uh, everywhere now. So that, that's my question. Uh, um, <laughs> great last question. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I think we we live in a really exciting moment where um, absolutely the speed with which social movement tactics and frames and symbols are able to circulate is certainly greater than it ever has been in human history. And that's largely because of the internet. Um, and so we do see you know, local instantiations of uh, mobilization frames or tactics or approaches that are developed one place one day and they pop up very quickly. So you know, Occupy spreads very, very quickly, bubbles down in the US, but then you know, Occupy HK pops up and morphs into the umbrella movement. And so I do think that there are. Um, I think it's an exciting time. Uh, that circulation of ideas and strategies and possibilities you know, um, gives me a lot of hope, um, even at the same time as we see, um, as you said, the hyper-militarization of borders and other you know, control structures that are responding to the terrifying possibility that the multitudes are now able to self-organize very rapidly. Um, so. You know, top-down power doesn't like the speed with which horizontal power is now able to move. And so it's not going to go down um, without a fight. Um, just a few really quick things. With DACA, we're able to travel right outside of the country and come back with deferred action. You have to pay another $500 to be able to do that and get government, government approval. But I think that's a huge opportunity. I've thought about international solidarity building for the longest, and media can get you so far. But like we've been talking about media, internet, right, is only one piece of the puzzle without having like a personal relationship, right? Seeing each other in person makes that kind of relationship go to a whole other level. And so for me, I'm really excited about, and I've been really excited about so many immigrant youth organizers going out, seeing what, what else is out there because there are some really amazing radical stuff out there, right? Bringing it back and also exchanging what we've learned here, right? And what we have been trying to build here. The US holds, I mean, holds a lot of power, right? And is seen still as the American dream to the outside world in many places, not in all, but in, in many instances. Um, and so we've known that for a very long time here is that immigrant youth 
need to change things, want to change things from within the beast, right, the belly of the beast, per se, um, and acknowledging that this is also our home. Um, and so how do we take that to another level, right? Knowing that we have DACA and that we're pushing for more and that we have this technology really advancing and letting us um, get to new levels as well. So those are some of the possibilities that I'm seeing. Thank you all. Thank you. Uh, there's a reception downstairs on the third floor. So just